Welcome to Analog Thoughts, episode 24. Whew, I always put a note at the beginning of these that uh, just says talk about what has been going on in your life. And uh, I don't know why I need a note to prompt me to do that, but <laughs> but sometimes I do. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I just get right into it. So I guess I'm going to talk about my life for a sec. Um, 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 stuff, music, stuff and things, stuff and music and art and stuff, and also my baby, raising a baby, that's what I do, and life is crazy, all day long, all day long, episode 24, sing the song, here I go, here I go, bling, 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 so that was it, that was everything, art, music, child. (laughs) Every year I put out a collection of Halloween music. I think I've been doing it since 2014 or something like that. Maybe before that. And it's not always a full-length album, but I at least do... I I set a minimum of doing at least three tracks, which is what I did this year. I put out a three-track Halloween-themed EP. For this one, I tried to keep it um, very melodic, driven. It's called Melodic Apparitions, and I, I, I wanted to make an experimental bass music collection of music that uh that sort of felt like like chamber music or classical music or 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 something that like people would waltz to or dance to and I, i'm pretty happy with how it turned out i'm pretty happy with uh i think i i think when i wrote down the themes melodic heavy experimental and like classy those were the those were like the descriptors for this project that i wrote down and i tried to keep those in mind while i was writing each track and i think i i think i did it i think i uh have a fully well rounded little ep so go check that out melodic apparitions uh, I have a show coming up this saturday in yellow springs ohio at the yellow springs street fair so if you are in this podcast should be out. Yeah, this podcast will be out, and you'll have a few days if you, if you haven't heard about that. If you haven't heard about that one, and you're in or around Ohio, Yellow Springs Street Fair, 4 p.m. on the main stage. Go check that out. And then Halloween weekend, well, Octo- the weekend of October 28th, I will be in Denver at the Fillmore with my Triangle Brothers, Yeti and Toadface, and we will be performing, opening up for Spongle as the Trifinity, and I'm very stoked on that show. I've been listening to Spongle since I was, like, 13 or something, like, since I was a a kid, so this is going to be a really just, like, epic one for me, and I'm excited that they asked us to be a part of it. It's a real, uh, it's a really surreal situation. So I've been getting geared up for that, making pamphlets, and, uh, doing, like, coordinating stage antics, and writing music, so I'm stoked. If you're, if you're listening, and you're one of my patrons, I know that I said on my Patreon that this episode was going to be a short story that I was writing, well, that I am writing, but I need just a little bit more time to finish that up, and I don't want to rush it, I mean, it's just a short story and it's for fun, but I found myself kind of rushing it and I was like, well, I could do research on a topic and put out another podcast before I feel like I'm even going to finish this short story. So I'm sorry I lied to you, patrons. This episode is going to be about the Salem Witch Trials and not my short story, but that should be, should be my next episode will be a short story that I have been spending some time on and I hope that you enjoy I've been getting deeper into writing. I'm writing I'm writing like a science fiction like a like a, like a metaphysical spiritual science fiction book right now uh that I'm super stoked on. I have no plans of like publishing it, but I thought about I thought about recording and I I thought about taking whenever I finish it. It probably won't be for who knows how long like a year, two years, I don't know. I'm just, I'm taking as much time as that story needs. But I'm thinking about reading it and like publishing the audio. Like not trying to get it published as like a paper book or like an ebook even, but like recording the audio myself, reading the book myself and putting that out. I don't know. I, I don't know how that would work. I, I know that um, 
streaming services are getting into releasing uh, audiobooks, I'd like it to be available for free. I'll definitely have like a link to where you can just download it and listen to it if you so choose. But I know streaming services are getting into having audiobook uh, catalogs. So I'm going to try and see how I can get it on those platforms. I've never done anything like that before, but that's way that anyway, that's way in the future. I'm writing a science fiction book and I'm also getting into writing more short stories. It's been really fun writing. It's been really fun because you get to just be, you, you, there are no rules. You can be like, I want to, I want it to get funny. I want it to get silly. I want it to get sad. I want it to, I want it to be, um, I, I want to like embed, embed this thought or embed that thought and you can weave it in whatever you want into this universe that you're creating and you can develop these characters and characters can grow and change and uh, learn inside of this universe that you create. And something about that is just really captivating to me. I've always been a big uh, video game player and I really like video games where you can design your character from the ground up and put points into like their stats and you can put them in, you can make, you can make like their, their race and, and their like creature race and their, their class race. So like, I want to have a wizard lizard man that lives in the swamps and i'm gonna make you know i love games like i love no man's sky where you can just design a character build bases on weird planets and stuff and writing for me has felt like the ultimate role-playing game i've always been fascinated with things like dungeons and dragons too like i have only played it a handful of times just because i don't have very many friends who do play it so i don't i'm not in that uh I'm not in that world, but I could see myself getting completely engrossed in that world just because I love, I love character building and I love telling stories and I love, um, creating universes for characters to live inside of. So writing has been really, uh, it's been, it's been kind of like, like I said, the ultimate RPG for me and I've just been loving it. I don't know if my, <laughs> it might be the uh, honeymoon period where I'm really in love with it right now and then that love might like wane a little bit and it'll hit a grind where I'm like, oh God, the story has to, story has to go somewhere. It's <laughs> like I've built my characters and, and they're in this universe now. What? And that's kind of where I'm at now. Not I'm not in the grind mode, but I have these characters established. I have this plot unfolding and finding creative ways to get from point A to point B has been super uh, creatively rewarding for me. So expect more writings and short stories and things from me in the future. But all right, okay, enough about me. Let's get into the Salem Witch Trials. And I have to admit, I did not know that much about the Salem Witch Trials before I did this podcast. It's something that I've seen in movies and referenced in books and referenced in just pop culture in general, but it it's not something that I had a full understanding of until I did some research and looked into what went down. The Salem Witch Trials were a series of trials and prosecutions that took place in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692 and 1693. 35 people were found guilty, 19 of whom were executed by hanging, 14 were women, and 5 were men, as well as 2 dogs and 1 other man named Giles Corey, who we'll get into a little later, he died under torture after refusing to enter a plea, and at least five other people died in jail. This was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of colonial North America. It wasn't the first, and it wasn't the last, but it was the deadliest. And during this time, practicing witchcraft was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. This whole situation is a prime example of mass hysteria. People thinking something is happening and going off the rails trying to rectify the situation. But it wasn't, it wasn't unique 
it was a manifestation of a much broader phenomenon that had been going on for a very long time. And and over the course of time in the United States, and mostly in Europe, there were between 40,000 and 50,000 people that died from witch hunts. The amount of people that died in North America is actually a drop in the bucket compared to uh, his like European history. That's and that's that's where we get into like everyone that came over here and colonized America. They brought all of these European traditions with them. This was a tradition that got brought over here with them. All the good traditions came. All the bad traditions came. Um, there's more to it than that. It was. It's more than just a European tradition getting implanted into the Americas, and we're obviously going to get into that. But these weren't the first witch hunts in the Americas, but they are certainly the most notorious. And we've come a long way. At the 300th anniversary event in 1992, to commemorate the victims of the trial, a park was dedicated in Salem and a memorial in Danvers, which is an area close to Salem, for, uh, for these victims. It had mostly fallen off in Europe at this time. Witch hunts had mostly fizzled there, and it, it wasn't something that they were doing in Europe. So for this, for this to start up again in the new world, for it to be like this old thing, this old European thing that, that did happen a lot, but had kind of fizzled, and then you come to this new world where things are supposed to be bright, new, this is great, whole new place, and things are going to get better. And then... We spark up this, this, these witch hunts again. It was just, it, it shook people. And it was very unexpected. And a big part of the reason that these old traditions got reawakened in the new world is that there was this guy who was publishing works 30 years before the witch trials in Salem named Joseph Glanville. And Glanville was a real jerk. He pushed the thought that a belief in demons and ghosts and witches uh, were tied to your faith in God. That if you believed in God, you also should believe in those things too. And this really fueled the fires of paranoia and belief in these things. People wanted to be faithful to God, and Glanville was making it so you had to be a real douche to do so. He was saying he was saying if you want to have faith in God, if you want to believe in Jesus and be have your eternal soul saved, you must also believe in demons. You must also believe in this uh in the in in that the world is being corrupted by demons and that you need to fight against these demons. So, this was all happening Years before the Salem witch trial, he was implanting the he was planting these seeds of paranoia, and he even inspired other authors. One named Cotton Mathers pushed the idea that demons were alive and were manifesting themselves in humans. And Cotton Mathers is going to come into play a lot in this story. He is he was a uh, he was an author, a minister, and he got into all of these positions of power. And he's just a real jerk. And he's one of the biggest reasons these witch trials happened in the first place and got as bad as they did. The trials were started after people had been accused of witchcraft, primarily by teenage girls such as Elizabeth Hubbard, Elizabeth Hubbard, who was 17, as well as one younger girl, Dorothy Good, who was four or five years old when she was accused of witchcraft. And I want to give a little context as to how all of this European witch hunt influence infiltrated early America. And the big obvious part is that we settled here from Europe. We brought European traditions with us, um, even the terrible ones like witch, like witch hunting. But there's also more to it than that. It's kind of uh, it's kind of convoluted. So I'm going to attempt to simplify it. So stick with me here. It's going to get a little political and a little historical, but I feel like it's going to set the stage as to where the headspace was for these settlers in and around Salem during the 1690s. New England was settled by religious dissenters that were looking to build their own society based on their own religious practices. 
they left Europe and were like, they were like, we don't like what we are being forced to believe in Europe. And we are going to move here to run things how we want and believe what we want. And that's, and that's all good. Those are all good things, except that they wound up becoming exactly what they were running from in Europe. Very hypocritical. Maximum hypocrisy. In the 1680s, Kings James the Se- King James II, the King of England, wanted to make sure his colonies remained under his control. He wanted to put people in positions of power that were going to make sure things were run how he saw fit. So... In the 1860s, he made this guy named Edmund Andros the governor of New England. And Andros was very unpopular for a variety of reasons. He didn't let people conduct business how they wanted. He imposed weird taxes. He denied the validity of land ownership. And the thing that really started a big fuss is that he forced the Church of England, King James II's church, into these newly formed Puritan areas. And this created an uprising, and it created a revolt in Boston in 1689, where he was removed from power, and the previous people who were in power were put back in place. And during all this time that all this is happening in the Americas, King James II was losing popularity in England. He starts making some political moves that upset England and putting people in positions of power that England doesn't like, and he starts to have all sorts of problems. And basically, because of this, he starts to lose more of his grasp on the American colonies, and the American colonies start to do more and more of what they want. This includes moving further and further away from the Church of England, and eventually, uh, James, King James II, gets replaced by King William and Queen Mary, who were Protestant, and the Catholic Church of England further dissipated from the equation. So all this happens, and then there are some years of turmoil and struggle in the colonies over land rights and who gets to govern and what land they govern, and there's just a lot of fighting and so on. This is early colonization of America, and things were shifting and churning, and political influence and change was constant and tumultuous. And just as the political climate was all over the place, so was the religious climate. Let's turn back just a little bit even further here, and I know I'm jumping all over the place in the timeline, but I'm really wanting to paint this picture of how all of this religious radical stuff happened. And how Massachusetts, how, how Massachusetts got to this point where they were hunting, quote, witches. So just for a sec, let's rewind to the 1620s and the 1630s. Catholic King Charles I was in charge in England, and he was hostile towards Puritans and other religious minorities, and they were fleeing England. Some of them went to the Netherlands, but a majority of them went to the Americas to settle and create where they could rule on their own terms. In the 1640s, a civil war broke out in England, leading to a Puritan-dominated parliament taking control. And in 1653, this parliament fell, and control was taken once again by the previous bloodline, King James II. So even before the witch trials, there were years and years and years of political and religious struggle and unrest going on in England and the colonies, where Catholicism was taking control, uh, Purit- Puritans were taking control. It was it was this sh- this power struggle and this religious struggle and this political struggle had been going on for a very long time. That sort of sets the stage. It sets the the tone of of how things can shift so violently and so um, so quickly. People became really willing to lean into religious extremism. People were tired of fighting and dealing with the shifts over power, and they were looking to have something solid, something that wasn't going to get pulled out from under them. And this is where things got dangerous. 
And it's funny because the hypocrisy is so blatantly staring them in the face here, but they just don't see it or they just don't care. You know, they're running from they're running from religious extremism to the Americas where they create religious extremism, but they're they just don't see it. They're completely, they're somehow completely blind to this. So there's whispers in the air about who owns what part of land, who might try to take control of the village, who wanted to take control of the local church, who was going to be in charge of this and that, and paranoia is in the air, and it's thick. People in positions of power are able to stay in positions of power by feeding into this paranoia, and if someone spoke out against them, it became easy to just squash those rumors by calling that person a witch or saying that they were unholy or in allegiance with the devil. And also, like I said before, there were religious leaders and authors that were already planting these seeds of paranoia about the relationship between believing in demons and witches and apparitions and how that ties into your faith with God. All of the struggle between Catholicism and Protestants started a group of religious extremists known as Puritans. And Puritans were essentially extreme Protestants that wanted to purge all of the Catholic influence out of the Protestant faith. And if you've, if you've listened to any of my other episodes that talk about the Catholic Church, then you already know that the Catholic Church wasn't afraid to mutate and adopt practices from other religions to lure people into joining them. They adopted Celtic traditions of both Christmas and Halloween and, and, and also Easter, and a ton of ceremonies into their faith to attract as many people as possible. They're sort of this like Frankenstein version of Christianity. They weren't, they weren't opposed to new recruiting techniques. Like, they would do anything to get people in the door and expand their influence. And the Puritans didn't like this. The Puritans were looking to purge any ancient, quote, evil influence the Catholic Church may have had on their church as pure Christian. We're Puritan Christians. That's the, that's the idea. That's the philosophy behind the Puritan faith is that um, Christianity in general had been corrupted by all these outside influences, and they were looking to purify it. They were Puritans. The minds of people wanted something solid that wasn't going to change. They were tired of things changing so much, and they were looking to get to the roots of their religion and stay there. And this is how the Puritan faith became so popular. And this is really how we got into people being okay with killing, quote, witches. 78% of the people accused and convicted of witchcraft were women. And prevailing New England culture was that women were inherently sinful and more susceptible to damnation than men were. Which is just so messed up. Throughout their daily lives, Puritans, especially women, actively attempted to thwart attempts by the devil to overtake them and their souls. Puritans held the belief that men and women were equal in the eyes of God, but not in the eyes of the devil, and that women's souls were seen as unprotected in their so-called weak and vulnerable bodies. And that's why so many, air air quote, witches were women. They were more easily corrupted by the devil in the eyes of the Puritans. And there was this thing that happened where women would be cleansed of their demons or have the evil the evil purged from their bodies, and they were allowed back into society. And that's why usually uh, when women were accused of witchcraft, they would just admit to it, because there was a chance that they wouldn't be killed, but purged and allowed to keep living. Obviously, not always, but a witch that denies it was more likely to die than one who admitted it and had the chance to become pure again. And women who did not conform to the norms of Puritan society were more likely to be the target of and accusation, especially those who were unmarried or did not have children. Basically, independent, strong women were evil in the eyes of the Puritans. And during all of this Puritan uprising, that guy I mentioned earlier, Cotton Mathers, starts to publish pamphlets and books that hold stories about women and children stealing 
and going crazy and stories about children losing control of their bodies and basically going feral. And none of these stories were substantiated or had any evidence to be or held any evidence to be true. And he claimed they were possessed by demons or spirits and had things and and had this thing that became known as the disease of astonishment. And beyond Mather's writings, there's this there's this event that happens that really ignites the hysteria. This is the moment where things start to go beyond just whispers and rumors and people talking about witches to actually people getting arrested and jailed and killed and tortured. Um, but in 1692, two girls, Betty Paris, age nine, and her cousin Abigail Williams, age 11, who were the daughters, oh, who were the daughter and niece of a Puritan reverend, began to have fits. And these fits were deemed to be, were deemed to be not epileptic in nature or of natural origin by another priest from a neighboring Puritan village. These girls screamed, threw things about the room, uttered strange sounds, crawled under furniture, and contorted themselves into peculiar positions, according to the eyewitness account of Reverend Diodet Lawson, a former minister in the Salem village. So you've got three Puritan priests, slash reverends, or whatever, in the room. None of them medically qualified to make a judgment on anything, saying, yep, these girls are possessed by demons. And I guess there was a doctor that was in uh, that did look them over and tried to make a judgment call, but he couldn't determine what was going on. So the priest just took it upon themselves to be like, oh, Doc doesn't know what's up, must be demons. Other young women in the village began to exhibit similar, similar behaviors. When Lawson preached as a guest in the Salem Village meeting house, he was interrupted several times by the outburst of the afflicted children. So because these Puritan priests thought there was demon business afoot, they decided to start arresting some people. And of course, they decided to start arresting women. Three women, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba. Sarah Good was the daughter of a well-off tavern owner, that committed suicide. And since Sarah was a woman, his estate and land was left to her brother, and Sarah owned nothing. She had an arranged marriage with an indentured servant who died, and he left her terribly in debt, and she was homeless and forced to beg for money in Salem. And I'm sure in the eyes of the church, like in the eyes of the church well-to-doers, uh, she was a sinful woman that was an easy target for committing witchcraft and probably just someone that the community wanted removed in general. She was ri- she was ri- she was riffraff. We gotta get her out of the community. She's a witch. She's begging for money. So Sarah Good was accused of witchcraft. On March 6th, 1692, when Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Paris, who were related to Reverend Samuel Paris, claimed to be bewitched under her hand. And also her late indentured servant husband spread, like, did spread rumors about her because she didn't respect him as much as he would have liked. So not only is she this riffraff and begging for money and she lives on the outskirts, she's a witch. Um, That's me as the villagers, if you're wondering. But her late husband had also, before he died, spread a bunch of rumors like, oh, she's a sinful woman. She doesn't wait on me hand and foot. So she was an she was an independent woman that had to live by her own means, and the town just didn't like her. That's basically why she got accused of witchcraft. Hey, yo, so this is like the middle of the show, and I wanted to, first of all, thank everyone for dialing into this podcast i'm glad that you're here and i'm glad that you are sharing this experience with me if you'd like to support the podcast leaving a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on goes a really really long way also if you are able to leave a review for the podcast uh that also goes an, an extremely long way 
another way you can support the podcast other than just telling your friends and family about it is signing up on my Patreon. There is a link in the description of this episode and all the episodes, or you can just go to patreon.com and search for Mount Analog, M-T, period, A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E. You get early access to podcasts, early access to my music, um, early access to art, and all kinds of other cool stuff. However you support, I cannot thank you enough. Infinite, infinite, infinite thank yous. I love you. Infinite blessings to you. Let's get back to the podcast. And next we have another Sarah, Sarah Osborne. Sarah Osborne was actually accused by Sarah Good to be tormenting the girls. So Sarah, the first Sarah gets accused, and then she's like, it's not me, it's the other Sarah. Sarah Osborne had an interesting situation tied up in land ownership with her sons. The short story here is that Sarah's baby's daddy died, and she remarried and took the land with her new husband, so she kind of like was like, I'm remarrying this guy. This is kind of his land. This is our land. But in the baby's daddy's will, her first husband, who she had the children with, he left the land to the sons once they came of age. And this obviously upset the sons, who undoubtedly were looking for any reason to remove their mother from owning the land. Even by death, perhaps? Even by accusing her of witchcraft, perhaps? And then we get to the third woman, Tituba. Tituba was an enslaved native woman. So already she's, ac- she's accused of all sorts of unholy things and witchcraft because of that. And she, has probably, she probably has the most interesting story here. Her origins aren't exactly known, but she was a slave from either North or South America or potentially Africa that was taken to Barbados and forced to be a cook for the Thompson plantation there. And Tituba interacted with a diverse group of people in Barbados. It is assumed that Barbados is the place where she picked up most of her knowledge about witchcraft from mistresses and other enslaved people. Once the head of the Thompson plantation died in Barbados, Tituba was inherited by Samuel Paris, and then she was brought to Massachusetts. Tituba allegedly admitted to witchcraft that she was accused of, and there are several accounts of her teaching the afflicted children voodoo and witchcraft, um, none of which are, are substantiated. And furthermore, she initially denied having practiced witchcraft. It was only after being beaten by her owner that she confessed to this. So she, so on the records, in the books, it's like, she confessed to witchcraft, but they just omit, like, after she was beaten many times and locked up and basically tortured, it's really messed up. Tituba also confessed to speaking with the devil, and in her confession she stated that he ordered her to worship him and hurt the children of the village. When she was questioned later, she added that she learned about occult techniques from her mistress in Barbados who taught her how to ward herself from evil powers and reveal the cause of witchcraft. And all of these confessions were obviously coerced out of her by being beaten, and, and, she, and she, was a sl- she was a slave. So William Paris and his cronies obviously beat all of these things out of her. It, was, it would have been the easiest thing for them to do, and that's what they did. And also, just to touch on this a bit, the people settling in the colonies were at odds at the time with the Native Americans. They fought, and many of the Protestant and Puritans believed that they were devil worshippers whose influence has spread into their communities, you got to remember this 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 was us colonizing America, stealing the land from the native Americans. They weren't happy, so they would show up and they would burn things and kill people because they were like you're on our land. Much of this is sacred land. Leave. And they were like, "No, screw you guys. We're going to stay here." And the people who were settling were being told that these native people were evil and that they were showing up and burning things and killing things because they worshiped the devil. That was just a common belief back then because they didn't that's what they were being told that's what the the average person thought was happening is that these people were attacking them 
because they were being sacrificed to evil spirits. So there's already this air of misinformation and like and just weird not on this these weird lies being spread. That's already embedded in the culture in Salem and the and the Americas in general. But Tituba was also condemned as a witch because she made a witch cake. And <laughs> which the witch cake is really um interesting. The thing about the witch cake is this wasn't even her idea. She did not want to make this witch cake. It was it was someone else's in the village's idea and this was apparently the final straw for the villagers like oh she made a witch cake but apparently from what i can gather a witch cake is when you take the urine from an afflicted person so in this case it would have been one of the kids or teenagers that was uh, that were afflicted by the witches that were having fits and going uh, going crazy allegedly going crazy you would get their urine and you would bake it into a cake with ash and uh, rye. So you'd use ash, rye, urine, and whatever else. Put it in a cake. You'd feed the cake to a dog. Once the dog ate the cake, the witch who was responsible for cursing or afflicting the people would then themselves get sick. That's what a witch cake is, and that's what the people were doing on a regular that's what people were making and feeding to dogs on a regular basis in Salem during the Salem witch trials supposedly allegedly this was a thing and this was the main uh this was the main thing that sealed the deal that Tatuba was a witch is because she I think it I think from from what I could tell it was like she got told to make it because she was the cook for her uh for the plantation she lived on and then after that, everyone was like, oh, she's the reason we're making witch cakes. The witch cakes aren't working, because obviously, why would they? <laughs> like, They were like, she's definitely a witch. She's having people make these weird cakes. Lock her up. And, and they did. But not ju- like I said, not just for that. For all the her being a, uh, a native and for her being coerced into saying she worshipped the devil and then also making the witch cake. All these reasons combined are the real reasons she got locked up. So they're all locked up. And about a month later, they get accused of practicing witchcraft again. And this time by two adult women who were able to get accusations taken to court. To Tuba... Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, Osborne were sent to jail in Boston to await trial and punishment on March 7th of 1692. So they were locked up the first time for witchcraft and then they got accused again. It doesn't when I was when I was reading it didn't really specify if they were still in jail. Tatuba was still in jail because she was a slave, so they just she was kind of just always in jail. But Sarah Sarah Good, they kept. Sarah Osborne, I'm pretty sure they released. Um, but she was still, you know, under a watch, the watchful eye of the community. But it didn't matter because two months later, they all three got accused again, and they all three get shipped to an even bigger jail in Boston, where they're going to have a trial on this now. They're like, this is out of the community hands, This we're taking this to the city, and we're making a big deal out of this, and you, guys, you ladies are going to be punished for your evil witchcraft that you're doing. So each of these women were outcasts, people that for one reason or another, the Puritan-run Salem and surrounding towns would have wanted out of their communities. And they got out of their communities. And even though, even though all of these accusations were definitely bogus, and their connections to anything evil were certainly not real, the symptoms and children of the afflicted adults, uh, some of those were real. Some of those were substantiated. People were actually getting sick, having fits, acting really crazy, and, and just not, not normal. People were exhibiting symptoms of what looked like demonic possession, quote, demonic possession, 
or uncontrollable fits and convulsions. And there's this theory about where this comes from and that they were actually victims of a thing called convulsive ergot poisoning or ergotism. And it's the effect of a long-term ergot poisoning traditionally due to the ingestion of the alkaloids produced by ergot. Ergot is a, is a fungus that would infect rye and grains, and the theory is that the people in and around Salem were eating this fungus. And this, it, it's, a, it's a toxic fungus, and it can have all kinds of negative effects on the brain and the central nervous system. And this ergot poisoning, like the other influences of European culture and religion, was also prevalent uh, there long before Salem. So this wasn't just something that happened in Salem. It happened in Europe, and it happened in other parts of the America, of the Americas. And it was most likely happening in Salem, but potentially on a much bigger scale, or on like a scale that was causing ergot sickness. There are two types of ergotism. The first is characterized by muscle spasms, fever, and hallucinations. And the victims may appear dazed but unable to speak, become manic, or have other forms of paralysis or tremors and suffer from hallucinations and other distorted perceptions. The second type of ergotism is marked by violent burning, absent peripheral pulses, and shooting pain of the poorly vascularized distal organs, such as the fingers and toes. The neurophoric activities of the ergot alkaloids may also cause hallucinations and irrational behavior. Ergot fungus contains lysergen, acid, which is a precursor for the synthesis of LSD. So it doesn't contain LSD, but contains one of the components needed to synthesize LSD. It is a psychoactive fungus. So long story short, all of the people during the Salem witch trials may have been tripping. The afflicted people may have had severe ergot poisoning, convulsing and appearing to be possessed, and the people witnessing this could have been mildly hallucinating, or the thought is that the whole community could have been mildly hallucinating and imagining things happening that weren't really happening. This is a pretty popular theory for what happened during the Salem Witch Trials. Everyone was either slightly tripping and seeing things that weren't real, or they were tripping really hard and they were poisoned and they were convulsing. And that's that's where we get the, quote, afflicted, like, afflicted by witchcraft or cursed by witched people. It's just a theory, but it's a it's an interesting one when you think about the grand scale of the situation. And it could have certainly fed into the mania and hysteria of the whole thing. I read some things where this theory, um, there are people who try to debunk this theory by saying none of the other symptoms that come with ergot poisoning were reported. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that weren't reported. Like, there are a lot of situations and scenarios that didn't go down the way that they were reported. So who's to say that this was or wasn't ergot poisoning? It's still something on the table that I think could have happened, and a lot of people think did ha- was happening. I mean, whether or not the entire village was hallucinating from a psychoactive fungus on a mass scale, some of them definitely were, because this fungus was, like I said, it had been growing on grains and rye, and, and uh, it had been affecting food supplies for thousands of years. Like, this was something that, if, if these people in Salem were storing grains over the winter, especially in like 1692, they stored, they stored their grains over winter in, in probably moist, warm places, which are perfect places for fungus to propagate and to spread. So, I think there was definitely fungus in the bread, and there was definitely fungus in the food. <laughs> but anyway, fungus aside, our initially accused women go to jail February of... 1692, by March, others were accused of witchcraft. A woman named Martha Corey, a child named Dorothy Good, and Rebecca Nurse, 
in Salem Village and Rachel Clinton in the nearby Ipswich Village all go to jail for witchcraft. More people are going to jail for this, and the hysteria is spreading and growing. The mania continues into May of that year, where where more people are jailed. Some people evade arrest and have warrants set out for them. Sarah Osborne, one of the first three people accused, died in jail on May 10th, 1692. And warrants were issued for 36 more people, with examinations continuing to take place in Salem Village, Sarah Dustin, daughter of Lydia Dustin, and Sears Bethia Carter Sr., and her daughter Bethia Carter Jr., George Jacobs Sr., and his granddaughter Margaret Jacobs, John Willard, Alice Parker, and Puditor Abigail Somas, George Jacobs Jr., David Andrew, Rebecca Jacobs, Sarah Buckley, and her daughter Mary Withridge. And that is just a, that is just a, a small number of the people that were accused and detained for this. And our boy, uh, the douche Cotton Mathers, wrote to one of the judges, John Richards, a member of his congregation, on May 31st, 1962, expressing his support of the prosecutions by cautioning him, quote, Do not lay more stress on pure spectral evidence than it will bear. It is very certain that the devils have sometimes represented the shapes of persons not only innocent, but also very virtuous. Though I believe that the just God then ordinarily provides a way for the speedy vindication of the person thus abused. So, Cotton Mathers is a psycho. He's a religious extremist, and he's probably tripping on fungus. And what he's talking about here with the spectral evidence, basically what he's saying is that we can depend on spectral evidence without a shadow of a doubt. And spectral evidence is this thing where when someone accuses someone, when someone accused someone of being a witch in and around Salem during this time, their primary accusation would usually begin with saying that they saw the accused person in front of them as this demonic apparition that was tormenting them and that was cursing them and uh, uh, like just afflicting them with pain somehow. That you'd see this apparition of a person, this demonic version of a person. That's what spectral evidence is. And Cotton Mathers was saying, spectral evidence is key to this. It cannot be... He's basically saying, like, this is undisputable evidence that someone's a witch. If someone tells you there's spectral evidence, then that person that they saw is a witch. And this is part of God's way of expediting this whole process of purging the land of these witches. June 2nd, 1692, the prosecutions begin in Salem. Bridget Bishop's case was the first brought to the grand jury who endorsed all the indictments against her. Bishop was described as not living a Puritan lifestyle for she wore black clothing and odd costumes, which was against the Puritan code. When she was examined before her trial, Bishop was asked about her coat, which had been awkwardly, quote, cut or torn in two ways. She also had a, quote, immoral lifestyle, and this was enough to confirm to the jury that she was indeed a witch. She was convicted of witchcraft, and Bishop was executed by hanging on June 10th, 1692, for her, quote, immoral lifestyle and her strange black coat and her non-Puritan ways, she must be a witch. I'm not making this up. This is all this all really happened. It's insane. And immediately following this execution, the court adjourned for 20 days until June 30th, while it sought advice from New England's most influential minister upon the state of things as they stood. Their collective response came back dated June 15th and composed by our boy, Cotton Mathers, the main douche of them all. And I'm not going to read all of what Mathers sent back for advice, but I'm pretty sure you can 
you can just essentially guess what he said. So they can, the Salem community kills one person and they send a letter. They're like, Hey, are we, do, are we doing good? Is this, uh, is, should we be doing this? And they send it to Cotton Mathers. Cotton Mathers writes a letter back and basically he says, kill the sinners, purify the land, keep on going with what you're doing. This witch hunt's great. He also basically says, you have God's permission to kill people that you deem to be witches. This is coming from the like head minister of the land. And the court continued to jail, prosecute, and convict with even more ferocity than it had before. Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howell, Suzanne Martin, and Sarah Wilds, along with Rebecca Nurse, went to jail at this time, where they were found guilty. All five women were executed by hanging on July 19, 1962. In August, grand juries indicted George Burroughs, Mary Eastie, Martha Corey, and George Jacobs Sr. And this next thing I'm going to read is an excerpt from More Wonders of the Invisible World, which is written by Robert Califf. And it's a recounting of what happened that day in regards to the arrested George Burroughs, who was a Puritan preacher that had been accused of witchcraft. And it goes, Mr. Burroughs was carried in a cart with others through the streets of Salem to execution. When he was upon the ladder, he made a speech for the clearing of his innocence with such solemn and serious expressions as were to the admiration of all present. His prayer, which he concluded by repeating the Lord's Prayer, and at the time witches were not supposed to be able to recite the Lord's Prayer, because they were too evil to be able to do it without error, um, but he recited it so well-worded and uttered with such composedness as such fervency of spirit as was very affecting and drew tears from many, so that it seemed to some that the spectators would hinder the execution. The accusers said the devil stood and dictated to him. As soon as he was hanged, Mr. Cotton Mathers, being mounted upon a horse, addressed himself to the people, partly to declare that he, Mr. Burroughs, was no ordained minister, partly to possess the people of his guilt, saying that the devil often had been transformed into the angel of light, and that this did somewhat appease the people, and the executions went on. Basically, George, George Burroughs gets up in front of the people before he's executed. He recites the Lord's Prayer, and he begs for them not to execute him. And Cotton Mathers, on his horse, is, is like, nope, he's the devil. The devil um, was guiding his voice, and oftentimes the devil will present himself as a person of light and an angelic energy, and that is to deceive you. Uh, keep the executions rolling. George Burroughs tried, but with Cotton Mathers in attendance, really no one stood a chance at surviving, because he was the grand, the grand lunatic. In September, grand juries indicted 18 more people. One of the main people indicted was farmer Giles Corey, who refused to plea at all, guilty or not guilty. He was tortured, and he was pressed beneath an increasingly heavy load of stones in an attempt to make him enter a plea. And there's this theory, there's this theory that he was being accused and killed so that his land could be seized, and that refusing a plea would allow his children to have his land after he died. Apparently, as he was crushed and they would ask him to plea, they would demand him to plea, he would just reply by saying, more weight. It took him two days to die. And it is true at that time, at that time in Massachusetts, if you did not plead, like if you, if he did plead guilty or not guilty, just by making the plea, the, his land would have been seized. All of his assets, his land, everything would have been seized. But he knew if he didn't make a plea, that they wouldn't be allowed to do that and that his family would be able to uh, retain the rights to his assets. So he basically sacrificed himself and refused to plea because he was 
you know, he was, in his mind, I'm sure he was like, I'm going to die either way. They're going to hang me. They're going to kill me one way or the other. I'm dead. So I might as well have my family be able to take my land. And for that, they tried to torture him and over a long, they tortured him over a period of two days by stacking rocks on, on top of him and he eventually died. But honestly, what a, what a badass. He's just like, I don't care. You can kill me slowly. I know, I see what you're trying to do here and I'm not having it. Four pleaded guilty and 11 others were tried and found guilty. More and more people are accused, more and more people are jailed, and more and more people are executed. Until the hysteria spreads so deep that the governor's wife is accused of witchcraft, at which point the governor, uh, Governor William Fifths, and and this is pre this is pre America, so he's like the governor of the New England area, um, just in general. He's like a general of he's a governor of that general area, but William Fifths after his wife is accused, decides that spectral evidence is not to be used in a court of law. He dismisses the current special court that has been overseeing these cases of witchcraft and ordered the end of executions for witchcraft. <laughs> he's, not, he's not a hero at all because he was turning a blind eye to all of this until it ended up at his doorstep. And it's just gross. He's the whole situation is just gross and vile and evil. But this special court that was set up was very bogus too. This special court that he disbanded, the way that they worked was really it was it was so messed up and I broke it I broke up the way that they prosecute people into seven steps. First, they would get a complaint from someone that someone in the village was a witch. Second, they would bring that person to a public examination where magistrates and the public would pressure them into confessing practicing witchcraft. Third, if the local magistrates if the local magistrates and the public were convinced that the suspected was indeed guilty, they were arrested and turned over to a higher court. Fourth, Witnesses were summoned, and these witnesses were the same people that pointed the finger at them in the first place. So, the people that accused them would show up and be like, They are a witch! I said they're a witch, and I'm telling you, they're a witch! That's what happened. Uh, next, a person could be indicted on charges of afflicting with witchcraft or making an unlawful covenant with the devil. And then, once indicted, the defendant went to trial, sometimes on the same day, and then almost always they were executed. There was also this thing that they would do just in general, the courts or um, the townspeople in general. If the accused witch touched a victim while they were having a fit and then the victim stopped, then that person was the witch that had afflicted them. And they would do this, uh, they would do this with like blindfolds. They would blindfold the afflicted person and they would have several people touch them and if the if the witch if the whoever touched them and the fit stopped that person was deemed the witch that was the touch test other ways they would find quote evidence included the confessions of the accused testimony by con, uh, testimony by a confessed witch who identified others as witches the discovery of poppets, which are books or pamphlets or sc scrolls or horoscopes or pots of ointments in the possession or home of the accused, and observation of what were called witches' teats on the body of the accused. And a witch's teat was said to be uh, a mole or blemish somewhere on the body that was insensitive to touch. And that's where we get like that's where we get the, the, the cartoon caricature of a witch having like a wart or a mole is because that's this is a this is a witch's teat. Although the last trial was held in May of 1693, public response to the events continued. In the decades following the trials, survivors and family members and their supporters sought to establish the innocence of the individuals who were convicted 
and gain compensation. In the following centuries, the descendants of those unjustly accused and condemned have sought to honor their memories. Events in Salem and Daverns in 1992 were used to commemorate the trials. In November 2001, years after the celebration of the 3000 or sorry 300th anniversary of the trials the Massachusetts legislature passed an act exonerating all who had been convicted and naming each of the innocent with the exception of Elizabeth Johnson who was cleared by the Massachusetts Senate on the 26th of May 2022 so that's crazy the last tri- the last um the last person was cleared of witchcraft just in May 26, 2022. That's very recent. Everyone knows about these trials. Everyone uh, has read about them or seen them referenced in shows, books, movies. They're woven into American literature and European literature. Their injustice is infamous. And they should be used as a reminder of how quickly things can go off the rails. Used as a reminder that extremism in all of its capacities is dangerous and should be kept in check. It's such an eerie topic. And I don't even mean the witchcraft at all. We've got these somewhat isolated villages succumbing to mass hysteria, abducting people and hanging them for what they think is witchcraft. And just this general, we've got this general sense of hatred, and lack of awareness, a system of tyrannical religious extremism taking control and spreading very, very quickly. And it was also pretty lawless. This all happened in pre-America, um, pre-America land, where lunatics were making and enforcing laws. And not that, not that lunatics aren't making and enforcing laws now, but I am able to go out in the street and say that I'm a witch, and I most likely won't get executed for it. This was a terrible time in history, and also taps into it, it taps into these core human things: jealousy, spite, narcissism, need for control, see Cotton Mathers. It was just a really dark, weird, and disgusting time in history for something like this to happen. It really is a horror story. Let's get into our next segment of the podcast I like to call Let's Ask AI. Let's Ask AI. I asked AI, do you think something like the Salem witch trials would ever happen again? To which AI responded, it is difficult to predict the future, but the Salem witch trials were a product of the specific historical and cultural context of their time. While history has shown instances of mass hysteria and persecution, society has generally become more aware of the importance of due process and individual rights. Nonetheless, it's crucial to remain vigilant against intolerance and prejudice to prevent similar events from occurring in the future. Just pretty pretty simple there. Um, let's not let this happen again. We've become... We've become more accepting and open to uh, religious ideas and philosophies. And I, and, and I feel like society in general, globally, has become more tolerant and accepting of different spiritual belief systems. But we, there's still room to grow. There will always be room to grow. And we always need to be mindful of what sort of decisions are being made and who that's affecting and if we are operating inside of frameworks that are beneficial to the progress of humanity. So thank you for that, AI. Let's get into the last little segment and then we're going to wrap the podcast up. These are our fun facts. And I try to keep these fun facts about the Salem Witch Trial. So any info I didn't say, any any little tidbits I didn't say that I wanted to embed, I'm putting them here in these little, uh, how, many, how many do we have in these five little fun facts? So fun fact number one is one of the most famous tests of the Salem Witch Trials was the swimming test. The idea was centered around the purity of water. If the accused floated, they were guilty. 
as the water was thought to reject evil. If they sank, they were deemed innocent, but often drown. I guess none of these facts are really going to be fun. <laughs> I don't know why I call. I should just start calling these facts uh, or ending facts because I find most of the time, like, there's definitely instances where they're not fun facts. This is definitely one of those in- instances. Fact number two. When one thinks of the Salem witch trials, it is easy to imagine that the witches were all burned at the stake. This is actually a trope from the European witch trials. Being burned at the stake was an age-old punishment reserved for heretics. Joan of Arc was burned at the stake, as were several thousand others accused of heresy during the Middle Ages. The tradition continued throughout Europe for several hundred years in the 18th century, This style of execution is commonly thought of in conjuncture with the witch trials because out of the tens of thousands of witch witch executions in Europe, many were burned at the stake. Fun fact number three. One dog was shot after a girl suffering from convulsions accused the dog of trying to bewitch her. However, after the dog's death, the local ministries reasoned that if the devil had possessed the dog, it would not have been so easily killed with a bullet. The second slain dog was actually thought to be a victim of witchcraft whose tormentors fled Salem before they could be tried in court. Our next fun fact is that even though the name Salem is associated with Halloween, is is associated with Halloween now and just all things spooky, It actually comes from Hebrew and means the opposite of scary. The 17th century settlers decided to name the town Salem after Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace and harmony. And the last fun fact is that even though most of Salem's Salem's achievements are overshadowed by the witch trials, they are actually responsible for the invention of the National Guard. In 2013, President Barack Obama signed a law stating that the birthplace of the guard is indeed Salem, Massachusetts. And there you have it, folks. A deepish dive into how the Salem witch trials started, what the religious, political, and cultural climate was like, and how something like this could have happened. Demented mindsets masquerading as vigilant do-gooders, something we all need to be mindful of. The trials stand as a testament to how quickly things can shift in a negative direction and how persuasive, charismatic, religious extremists can be. We all need to be mindful of what we are being told, why we are being told that, and who is telling us. Also, we need to be mindful of how our intentions are guided. Are there things rooted in your upbringing and your mind that are shifting your perception in a negative direction? Are you actively part of a belief system that isn't beneficial for the progress of humanity? We need to be mindful of political and social influences on our values and morals. Don't be afraid to challenge established systems and concepts of what is right or wrong. Stagnation does not encourage progress. Don't forget to check on your mental health, and don't forget to check on the mental health of your loved ones. I'll see you next time. Bye! Analog thoughts, analog thoughts, analog thoughts, analog thoughts.